Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio. 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's, Uni- Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. Today, my guests are Molly Wallace and David Carruthers. Dr. Molly Wallace is an Associate Professor and the Graduate Chair in the Department of English and Literature at Queen's. Her research interests lie in contemporary literature, eco-criticism, and eco-cultural studies. Molly has published extensively on these topics, including her most recent book, Risk Criticism, Precautionary Reading in an Age of Environmental Uncertainty. David Carruthers is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at Queen's, where he studies the environmental humanities, particularly dark ecology and ecophenomenology. His doctoral research looks at ecophenomenological plant-human intersections as represented in post-Cold War literature and their relationship to understandings of ecological crisis. David co-edited a book with Molly entitled Permaculture, Imagining Alternatives in an Age of Crisis. So welcome to both of you. Uh, let's let's uh, start with you, David. Um, what's dark ecology uh, and, and what's ecophenomenology? These are uh, mysterious terms to me. Those are, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a mighty big question. Um, dark ecology, as I use it, is a, a term picked up by Timothy Morton in his book of the same name. Intuitively, the term is something of a portmanteau combining the philosophical movements of deep ecology, uh, which takes an uh, ecocentric rather than an anthropocentric or human-centered worldview, uh, considering the human species among rather than above its non-human environments, and dark green environmentalism, uh, which conceives of our present environmental problems as imminent consequences of industrialization and works toward initiating political change that reflects this understanding. Dark ecology, then, is a way of thinking through a lived ecological understanding, what Morton calls ecognosis, a process that defamiliarizes the human, rendering it uncanny by considering it within its vast and complex temporal and biological environments. For Morton, such uh, such knowing results in things becoming weirdly weird, as he calls it, uh, recognizing that everything exists in strange loops that twist and fold back onto themselves. Essential to this concept is the human reliance on agriculture, which Morton calls agrologistics, comparing it to a computer virus that replicates itself endlessly and aimlessly without consideration for the grave social and ecological impacts it produces. Ecophenomenology, like other ecocentric thinking, works to situate the human among, rather than isolated from, its more than human natural world, to borrow a, a phrase from David Abram in The Spell of the Sensuous. 
It's a school of paratactical rather than syntactical thought. That is, it recognizes individual subjects or actors, human and non-human alike, as embedded within the rich and complex tapestry of the world, without giving precedence to any given actor over another. In this way, ecophenomenology works to contest and eradicate the arbitrary hierarchy of causal relationships between subjects and objects that arises from Enlightenment thinking, specifically naturalism, which imagines the world as little more than a machine comprising a long chain of causes and effects. More importantly, ecophenomenology, with its focus on the immediate sensory experience of the, the living, breathing world, regards thought and perception as arising spontaneously between the perceiver and the thing perceived, between the thinker and the thought itself. In light of such a collaboration between one's flesh and the flesh of the world, uh, to borrow a term from Maurice Merleau-Ponty, one might then uh, revise or revisit the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, into the more egalitarian, perhaps, uh, it thinks, therefore it is, or better yet, it is being thought. For my own purposes, I employ these concepts as tools to pry into an understanding of the often obscure and complex interrelationship between human and plant actors in order to demonstrate how a weirdly weird plant-human mutualism emerges uh, in the fiction of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. That's great. So I, I, th I think I understand what you're saying. I get the difference between the naturalism and sort of uh, the duality there. Uh, in that sort of 19th century paradigm as opposed to the more contemporary paradigm that we're all sort of one. Um, but I, I'm not, I didn't quite grasp the dark ecology part. What, what's the dark part? Yeah, the dark, the dark of dark ecology um, is, well, Timothy Morton uses this analogy of uh, biting into a piece of dark chocolate. Um, so, uh, so he says that the first, the first impulse that one experiences with ecological thinking or ecognosis is um, the bitterness. One yeah. tastes the bitterness. Um, and so the impulse then in becoming aware of the ecological problems that we face today in the Anthropocene uh, is to shy away from them or to uh, to to be overcome with despair. Um, and he uh, and so he actually argues that the dark of dark ecology uh, is actually quite bright. Uh, that you have to really indulge in uh, ecological thinking in the same way that you would indulge in dark chocolate in order to get to uh, to get at the hope and the optimism uh, and to to make change and impact uh, impact one's life and uh, others lives and the future that's wonderful I'm glad I asked that question you spoke very very well Molly let me turn to you I know that a lot of the research that you're doing draws on a wide variety of cultural sources and we were, we've you know David was talking about even going back in like 100 years 150 years can you talk a little bit more about some of the sources that uh, impact on your research, the cultural uh, dimension of things? Sure. Um, I guess the kind of questions that interest me and, and interest Dave, I mean, we have separate research projects as well as our collaborative um, work, so uh, he can speak for himself on this too if you'd like, but uh, uh, the kind of research questions that interest me 
um, are not strictly literary, right? So um, I draw on all kinds of cultural texts. Basically, I'm interested in sort of how do we uh, understand what it's like to live in a state of mega risks of the present in the Anthropocene, as uh, David suggested. So what is it like to live in a state of climate change? Um, what is it like to live under the shadow of the nuclear threat? <clears throat> Um, and so uh, I'm drawing on any kind of source that can help me understand that. So that ends up being film, um, theater, uh, websites, news media, um, philosophy, environmental studies, uh, popularized science, uh, as well as literary texts. Very so interesting. When you talked about when you talk about sort of the natural world, and then you also talk about nuclearization, which is a, is a humankind phenomenon. Are the two the same? Is is what we're doing as humans because we're animals? Is it sort of part of the natural frame of things, or is it, is it a different reality? Well, I think and there are two ways to think about that. Um, I think sometimes when people say everything we do is natural because we are a natural species like other animals, it's a way of kind of naturalizing um, everything. So it sort of gets rid of the nature culture binary by moving everything to the nature side. And I think there are um, implications that make me uncomfortable with that move. I think what the concept of the Anthropocene has done is kind of the opposite, which is to move everything to the cultural side, which is to say, um, yes, nuclear and whatever the natural world is are in the same realm now that you can't separate those things anymore and it was probably artificial to do so in the first place. Um, but animals aren't animals either and plants aren't plants. So sort of the, the way that that nature culture binary allowed us to think about um, animals is somehow different from humans um, and more animalistic to have you know, for lack of a better word, more like automatons, not thinking, not uh, learning, not using tools, all those sorts of presumptions about what is on the nature side of things, I think have been overturned um, in more recent scientific um, discussions. Uh, and um, the Anthropocene gives us this opportunity to think about um, our own actions as having consequence um, beyond anything that could be conceived of as strictly human or cultural. Mm. Talk a little bit more about the the concept of risk. I know you you, you know it's a, a big part of the research that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'll just yeah, throw the mic open to you on that. <laughs> sure. So the the concept of risk that I use is. Um, really comes from a German sociologist named Ulrich Beck, who um, wrote several books on the risk society, which is what mm -hmm. he um, termed it. Um, that's the kind of uh, theoretical or academic basis for my work, but it really comes, for me, from a childhood of growing up under the, you know, in the Cold War and sort of feeling at any time that we might be annihilated by nuclear war and participating in walkathons and the like with my mom, you know, for the nuclear freeze campaign. Um, and at a certain point in um, my life, that sort of the fear that was associated with that um, mega risk, with that uh, sort of impending catastrophe, shifted to climate change. And so I just was interested in how to explore 
the differences between those things is that a similar kind of feeling um, to feel at risk in, in a climate context as it was uh, in a nuclear context, and also to emphasize that the nuclear risk hasn't gone away despite the end of the Cold War. Um, so the concept of risk that Ulrich Beck conceives um, has to do with this sort of future catastrophe. It comes out of a, um, thinking about insurability. So if you think about the nuclear risk, you can't insure against it. Mm. It's a catastrophic future event that cannot be insured. And whereas earlier kinds of risks that were created by earlier technologies could be insured, uh, something like the nuclear is uninsurable. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website, which is at queensu.ca slash research. My guests in this episode are Molly Wallace and David Carruthers, Molly is an associate professor and the graduate chair in the Department of English Language and Literature at Queen's, and David is a PhD candidate in the Department of English. One of the goals for Blind Date with Knowledge is to demystify scholarly research and to personalize the researchers doing the research. As a way of making that goal real for us, I ask every guest on the show to tell us a joke or recite a poem, a quote, uh, reference a song um, that relates to the researcher or the researcher's motivation. So, Molly and David, I'll uh, throw the mic back open to you. I selected for uh, for a, a piece of work, a piece of inspiration, perhaps uh, for my own efforts, uh, my own research projects, um, an excerpt from Walt Whitman's uh, "The Song of Myself," and I'll just go ahead and read it. The past and present wilt, I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Listener up there, what have you to confide to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly, no one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. I concentrate toward them that are nigh, I wait on the door slab. Who has done his day's work? Who will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? Thank you, David. Molly? Well, as I was working on my book, Risk Criticism, I had a young child at the same time, and I kept thinking that really one could summarize that book um, with the old woman who swallowed a fly. If you're familiar with that song, there was an old woman who swallowed a fly. Um, and then she swallows a spider to catch the fly, perhaps she'll die, and then swallows uh, you know, increasingly large objects that are to predate the <laughs> thing that she swallowed before until eventually she swallows a horse and then she's dead, of course. Um, but that just seemed to me to be a sort of description of how modernity has proceeded. Um, we swallow a fly and then we swallow the spider to catch it and we, you know, we need power so then we create nuclear energy and then we have to store it somewhere and then we have meltdowns and then we try to clean that up somehow and we get climate change and then we try to, 
you know, create solar mirrors to reflect sunlight back into space. One of those things is going to be the horse, I think. But in any case, I think there's profound wisdom in that song. Thank you very much. My guests in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge have been Dr. Molly Wallace and David Carruthers. If you have a question about anything related to research that you would like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.